to really improve the vector of growth, you've got to take some bigger risks, which sometimes will work and sometimes they don't, which is what we call breakthrough initiatives, which are broader technology bets on the future. And we're lucky, we're a very large company that's been successful. You have the money to invest. So as a CEO today, I'm not just thinking about my tenure, I'm thinking about my successor's tenure and then his or her successor's tenure. And if I don't make investments now in some of these breakthrough technologies that are gonna be relevant five, 10, 15 years from now, then Honeywell is not gonna have a bright future. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Darius Adamchek. Darius is chairman and chief executive officer of Honeywell. He joined Honeywell in 2008 when Metrologic, where he was chief executive officer, was acquired. Prior to joining Honeywell, Darius held several leadership positions with Ingersoll Rand and Booz Allen Hamilton. He began his career as an electrical engineer at General Electric in 1988. Darius is a vice chair of the U.S.-China Business Council, a member of the Business Roundtable Board of Directors, and a member of the Business Council and Aspen Economic Strategy Group. In addition, he was elected to the Board of Directors for Johnson & Johnson in 2022. Darius, welcome to the podcast. I've had the pleasure of engaging with you on a number of important policy issues of the day, including U.S.-China relations, technology and innovation policy, and climate change. I've also had the pleasure of working with you as a member of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group and as an investor in the TPG Rise Climate Fund. And you're an outstanding CEO and a real difference maker. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Before diving in, let's start at the beginning. You were born in Poland and immigrated to the United States at age 11. I love to talk with people like you who came to this country as immigrants and have made big contributions. Tell our audience about your early childhood in Poland. Well, first of all, Hank, thank you for the warm welcome. I'm glad to be here. And uh, just to jump right in, it's, uh, it certainly was an interesting background. And it, uh, my childhood got a little disrupted. I was uh, living in Poland. My father tried to come to the U.S. for a number of years. But we've got to remember, this was the early to mid-70s, where things were a little bit different in Poland than they are right now, in terms of having the ability to leave, having the ability to really relocate to a new country uh, was much more challenging than it is right now. And what made the situation as unique was my father came from a split family. His father was in the U.S. He tried to get him to immigrate for a number of years and was just unsuccessful. And uh, my father was technology engineering leader and worked for one of the state-owned enterprises. And frankly, every time he applied for a permit to leave the country, he got rejected. And uh, what happened was he said, well, you're getting rejected because you add a lot of value to the country, to the enterprise, to the development of technology. And they said, we can't really let you go. So what he ended up doing is actually quitting his job and starting his own taxi business. And one might ask, well, why a taxi business? Why would you do that? And the reason is that was one of the very few enterprises back then in Poland where you actually could have a private business of your own. 
So that's why he picked it. And he was doing that job. And subsequently, he applied again. And they did finally let him go, which was kind of an interesting set of uh, circumstances that all of that happened. So we got pretty short notice. Uh, this was uh, October of 1977. And uh, we got the permit to go. My father was very worried that it might get drawn back and that he wouldn't be able to leave. And uh, within a matter of two to three weeks, we packed up all our stuff and basically set out for the U.S. And, uh, you know, our initial uh, ground where we landed was uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, because that's where my grandfather was. And that's where we initially settled. And it was interesting times because I got dropped in right into an English school, literally, I think, day two or day three after I came to the U.S. There weren't really any Polish-speaking schools available. And uh, it was a bit of a struggle, to, to be quite honest. It was a struggle because in math and some of the sciences, I was a little bit ahead of the of that grade. So I actually was handling some of the material quite well and didn't re- really require a lot of English to be successful. But English and a lot of the other subject, I really struggled. And, uh, and the school made some accommodations where they took one period and I'd go off in a separate room with one of the kids who try to kind of teach me the basic uh, words in English with some pictures and so on. But And every week, things got a little bit better. I immersed myself, watched a lot of English TV, and uh, probably three to six months into being in the U.S., I I was able to at least communicate roughly, (laughs) not very, very well, but I was able to do it. And, and, you know, every month, every every year thereafter got a little bit better. But it certainly was an interesting uh, experience and really defined my career for future. It, it really taught me a lot about resilience, about adjusting to new environments, to adjusting my own style, the culture, all those kinds of things that that I was very unfamiliar with and had to learn the hard way. So uh, it certainly was an interesting time in my life. Yeah, I gotta bet it was culturally difficult. I assume you heard a few Polish jokes. Now, at that point, Polish jokes were highly prevalent. Everybody was telling them, and for whatever reason, people thought that I wanted to hear the full array of them. And as an immigrant who really doesn't understand sort of these kinds of jokes, to be honest, they're quite hurtful. And uh, I, I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't particularly find them funny, but you know, most of them are about how dumb Polish people are. And although it, it did hurt, I, I've always kind of felt, well, let's see if I can prove them wrong someday in the future in terms of how dumb Polish people are. And, and uh, I used it probably a bit more as motivation for the future in terms of what I wanted to accomplish more than anything else, because I mean, you couldn't really stop them. And I'm so glad that, you know, sort of a lot of these jokes are, for the most part, gone from our society. You just don't hear them anymore. And I think that's overall a very good thing. You know, as you look at me, I'm a white male and you know, you'd say, okay, I'm not, I don't really, I'm not a minority. I'm not a person of gender diversity, but, but it was a little bit of a snippet as to what it means to be from a different ethnic background group and what it means to sort of hear a lot of these things that are actually quite hurtful. So, you know, got through that time, like I said, but I never forgot that. And I, I really used it as motivation for the future in terms of saying, well, we'll see how dumb Polish people really are. So it's quite interesting because I can see that it helped shape your career and it had a lasting impact and for you, a a motivational one. So I want to switch gears now. You've been at Honeywell since 2008, became the CEO in 2017. I'm sure many of our listeners have some of Honeywell's consumer products in their home, but some might 
know just how expansive Honeywell's business is. So Darius, give us a brief overview of what the company does and the industries it's focused on. Well, first of all, when people think about Honeywell, probably the first thing they think about is the round thermostat. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending upon how you want to look at it, that's not even part of Honeywell anymore. You know, that's part of another company that we spun out in 2018 called Residio. So all our consumer-oriented building products and offerings and so on really were spun out of that business, although we still license the brand. It's not really part of the Honeywell portfolio. And I think that there is a little bit of confusion out there about what Honeywell is and what Honeywell does. And maybe at the outset, I want to kind of define Honeywell is a technology company that serves the industrial sector. That's probably the best way to describe it. And the common theme throughout the Honeywell businesses is control and automation. That is the common theme in all our business units. And there's five primary business units that we operate in. I'll go through each of those and just explain a little bit how they link back to control and automation. So our biggest business is aerospace, and we participate in all segments of aerospace, that being air transport, business aviation, defense aviation, all those segments. And one of the big segments of that business is avionics, which is we control the aircraft. And whether it be a fighter aircraft or a business aircraft or an air transport, big jetliner, that's our line of business. So again, it links back to that automation and control theme. Our second biggest business unit is performance materials and technologies, which you know roughly think about that as serving the energy industry. And you know, one of the biggest businesses in that portfolio is our annual process solutions business, which provides automation and controls for large industrial plants. So again, that control and automation theme, it also has batch chemical business in there with some specialty chemical businesses. And we have a very, very big play in sustainability. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that customers don't know what a big role that Honeywell can play in the energy future of the planet. And more or less every relevant technology for the future we have within Honeywell in terms of an energy transition. So whether it be green fuels, whether it be plastics recycling, carbon capture, energy storage, hydrogen, all of these technologies are currently within Honeywell. And we're excited about the future because we can play a very outside role in creating it. And our motto is, you know, the future is what we make it. And this is probably the best place where it exemplifies that, which is a lot of our technology is going to be used in the future as we transition from a hydrocarbon intensive energy footprint to one that's much more renewable and sustainable. And although we still serve the hydrocarbon industry, actually in quite a bit ways, we're also helping them transition into the future because as we transition, we have to do it thoughtfully and gracefully so we don't cause disruption. Our next biggest business unit is Honeywell building technology. So think about that as all the controls and automations that go into a building. And again, when we say building, most people automatically migrate to an office building. That is one type of building, but we also do a great deal of work in airports, hospitals, stadiums, data centers. But the only segment we don't serve is the residential segments. We don't play in that segment because that's not where our technology are. But it's a broad portfolio that where the foundational element 
is really building controls with fire products, security products, analytics, connected buildings offerings. And something that's particularly exciting lately is the quality of the air that one breathes. So we have a lot of solutions we call healthy buildings because everyone is really concerned and should be about the quality of the air that they breathe. And that solutions we now provide, it really assures the occupant of the health of the building, the quality of the air they breathe, which was really a kind of a new set of solutions that evolved out of COVID era. Our next business is our SPS business, uh, which is really, think about that as technology for the industrial or deskless worker. So we have warehouse automation is contained in there. Safety, which really protects the deskless worker. Uh, we also have a sensing business that's contained in there, which really provides sort of the, if you think about IIoT, we have a lot of the sensors that the industry is going to need to really to be able to connect software to sensing to provide comprehensive solutions. That business has been one of our highest growing business, particularly through the COVID era, because warehouse automation really took off. We changed how we buy things. We buy things much more online. And now we do and actually in stores. And that business has had a very high rate of growth. And then finally, our Honeywell Connected Enterprise, being an automation control company, we're pretty much connected to all these various systems out there. I talked about the aircraft. I talked about buildings. I talked about industrial plants. So we already collect a lot of data. Now we use it to control and have things stay within control limits. But now we're using that data and information differently, which is to add other value drivers for our customers, whether it be energy savings, where it be safety, security, proficiency, efficiency of the workers. We have a number of various software solutions which really provide those kinds of value drivers rather than just controlling. So in summary, Honeywell, fairly complex company with one common theme, controls and automation. Darius, it's what, a $100 billion market cap company? It's north of that, Hank, and hopefully uh, substantially more north of that. So it's uh, it's been growing quite well. Darius, you took over Honeywell after an iconic CEO like David Cody, which is always a challenge. What challenges did you face and what opportunities did you pursue here? Well, first of all, Hank, you're so right. It is actually much, much more difficult to take over after a good CEO than a bad CEO. And it's much more difficult to run a company that's already been good versus one that's broken. And I've run businesses that were good, broken, because your starting point is so much lower. To take a business from, let's say, being a 5% profit business to a 10 or 15% profit business is actually not that hard as long as you're in a reasonable market. If the market is okay, to improve basic profitability is not that difficult providing, you know, market dynamics are okay and, you know, you can enhance your offerings and so on. And, and I've ran a couple of those businesses. But now to take something that's in the mid-teens and take it into the mid-20s, which is really the transformation that we've been trying to drive at Honeywell, is a whole different level of effort and level of difficulty. And everybody wants to talk about you know, CEOs who really take over things that are very, very broken, and they make them good. But I think sometimes we ought to spend a little bit of time talking about businesses that were already good, like Honeywell, and then making them great. And when I first came into the job and 
I didn't know a lot of the analysts and I didn't know the investment community. And probably the first thing that I heard from them was, well, you know, Dave did a nice job with the company. So just keep doing exactly what he's been doing. Don't break anything. So I said, that's sort of mission number one is just do that. And uh, I thought about that. I said, well, geez, I'm not sure that that's really the right direction for the business if I just keep doing the same thing that he was doing. And, and what took us from, you know, a single digit profitability and growth to now something in the mid 20s in the profitability is going to require a whole different playbook and a set of tasks and strategies to get us there. And, and frankly, I changed quite a few things. First and foremost, I really wanted to drive a digital transformation, both internally and externally. You know, we were a good company, but our IT footprint, our manufacturing footprint, and all those kinds of things were quite vast and somewhat disorganized. And if you want to be a digital contemporary company, you've got to really organize that. And we had a strategy to drive our software growth and sales. And I talked about Honeywell Connected Enterprise as one of our business units. That's the external side. But just as important was the transformation internally. And it started out with something very, very basic and pedestrian, which is let's create a data architecture. Let's create a common set of data fields, you know, and create masters around our information, around the customer, around the employee, around materials and so on. So we had to organize that, collapse our IT footprint. And now we're kind of in more of the final innings where we have collapsed that IT footprint, reorganized it, have coherent data structures, same processes, and leverage that data to really run our businesses better. Because that's what's all about. I mean, Honeywell is a very complex company, and our objective was to make it much more simple to run and much more data-driven. So Darius, a terrific discussion of Honeywell. I want to change gears now, because to me, what is remarkable about you is you're not just an outstanding CEO. You're a business statesman. You grapple with policy issues just like your predecessor did. So they're very big issues, policy issues in the United States and uh, globally. So I'd like to begin by talking about geopolitics. One of the biggest dangers you see from the Russian-Ukraine war, you know, as a CEO, what has the war taught you about operating a multinational business in today's increasingly volatile geopolitical environment? This one is close to home, and this is probably our single biggest geopolitical issue, at least right now, right at this moment, in October of 2022. You know, I think that the world is unpredictable. And I'll talk a little bit about this, both from a business perspective, but from a, a set of geopolitics. And no one, at least most people, would not have predicted that Russia would invade Ukraine in February of 2022. But it happened. And now all of a sudden you have to make some very quick business adjustments. You know, we had decent business in Russia. I mean, we had over 1% of our sales, particularly for the energy industry were present there. And all of a sudden the sanctions came, our supply chain was impacted, our level of business was impacted. You know, we had to quickly pivot to an alternative supply chain to what we're going to do in the business. You know, we ended up shutting down our businesses there and basically leaving the country. But you no, know, that's a lot easier said than done. I mean, there's a lot of legal work, cleanup work. You know, you have to treat your employees with respect and we have to exit very quickly and then quickly change our supply chains to make sure that we can continue to serve our customers. In Ukraine, we didn't have a big presence 
but we had about 50 to 100 employees that we wanted to make sure were well taken care of and safe and so on. And we've made accommodations for that as well, but kind of shifting a little bit further away from kind of the business issue. I mean, I think that this is a real challenge that's facing not just that region. I think that this is something that I'm concerned about in terms of where this conflict is going, because I just don't see an easy set of solutions as to how it gets resolved. You know, I see escalation, and I think we just passed the annexation of territory by Russia, and it's concerning. I just can't predict sort of the next step, but things keep escalating, and and this is no longer just a Russia-Ukraine issue. This is a challenge that the globe is going to have to deal with, and frankly, one that needs a resolution quickly, because we're not on a good path right now, and if this continues to escalate, I'm very concerned about a much broader conflict which can draw in many, many other countries and frankly go on for quite a while. I'm not just worried about this from a business, which, and obviously the business implications of that would be much, much greater, frankly, even much more difficult to plan for. I think it's lost its media cycle for whatever reason. And I think that's a real shame because this should be absolutely front and center on all of our agendas. And we have to be looking for some solutions as to how to de-escalate the conflict. And Darius, it's really pretty troubling because it's not clear to anyone how and where and when this is going to end, right? We know one thing for sure, that the world's never going to be the same again. But we still have uncertainty as to what's going to bring this to a conclusion and what that conclusion is going to be and when it's going to take place. Now, I want to go right from there because this is a a very complicated world we're living in today and a dangerous world. So I want to go to U.S. China, because where I really got to know you best, Darius, was uh, speaking with you about China and U.S.-China relations, which will shape the geopolitical landscape for the foreseeable future. You're the vice chair of the U.S.-China Business Council, and you've got a business in China. So How do you assess the current state of the economic and business relationships between the United States and China? And how have you seen that change in the last five to 10 years? And what do you see in the future? Then I'm going to go to the next question, which is going to be how you assess U.S. policy toward China. This is a relationship that obviously is not trending in the right direction. I mean, we've seen a deterioration in this relationship, particularly over the course of the last you know, five to 10 years. As I go back to the early 2000s, it was in a very, very different place. And, and it's not in such a great place right now. And I would say the vector is moving down, not up, which is probably even more troubling than anything else. It's worrisome because the two countries are They have economic interdependencies, which I actually think is a very positive thing. I think isolation is not a good thing for China to be isolated from the U.S. and vice versa, because in my opinion, the more isolation there is, the greater the potential for conflict. We never want to see something that would convert from a cold war into a hot world. And and I I don't want to be Pollyannish about the issues that the two countries have that the issues are real, they need to be dealt with. Um, and there needs to be dialogue in terms of how these some of these issues will be resolved. But I also think it's critically important that the two countries find some topic where they have a common objective, a common cause, and work together to drive a positive outcome. I mean, to me, one of those areas could be sustainability. I mean, I think both countries have sustainability and 
creating a much greener planet for the future, whether it be the beautiful China policy or the sustainability policy of this administration, which they're very actively trying to drive, and continue some of the dialogues about how the two countries can work together, whether it's sharing technology, whether it's having common goals and metrics. I just think we need to continue to have that dialogue and actually move away from isolation, but move much more towards dialogue and finding some threads where we have some common objectives. And let's be honest, you know, as, as we kind of look at the history of the world, generally economic progress is not made when countries isolate. Economic progress is made when there's trade and interaction of other countries of the world and so on. So I remain hopeful that progress can be made. Obviously, the current vector is not great, but both countries are better off finding some way to cooperate while at the same time addressing some of the issues and challenges. But we have to engage and uh, we have to communicate. So, Darius, I'm going to move from U.S.-China because we could spend the rest of this podcast talking about that topic. So I want to move to innovation. So as a CEO of Honeywell, you implemented something called the Breakthrough Initiative. Explain what this is and how it relates to innovation strategy. Because I think one of the interesting things, everybody talks about innovation, right? And this has been something that has positively distinguished America and uh, is a key to our success. And uh, how do you see that playing out and how do you try to create the environment for innovation in Honeywell? To me, innovation is the lifeblood of any company, any technology company, because if you're not innovating, if you're not bringing new products, solutions to the market, you just can't grow organically. And I just don't think that a strategy which is based purely on inorganic growth is sustainable long-term. So for me, it's really the lifeblood. And I think about innovation in two different components and try to bisect them. What most companies do, and we do as well, which is innovation through sort of incremental progress. So it's the next best product. It's the incremental innovation in terms of improving features and functions and value drivers for a customer, whether it's a product or service. And you continue to iterate, make it better, and it improves every year, helps your growth, helps the value proposition for the customers. And you can grow that way. And it's an important component. Hopefully enables you to take market share, to improve your profitability because there's more value that's being created. And you've got to fund that kind of innovation every single year. And it's what I kind of call the basics. And many companies can be successful just doing that well. And I think that's fine. And we do that as well. But to really improve the vector of growth, you've got to take some bigger risks, which sometimes will work and sometimes they don't, which is what we call breakthrough initiatives, which are broader technology bets on the future. And we're lucky. We're a very large company that's been successful. We have the money to invest. So as a CEO today, I'm not just thinking about my tenure. I'm thinking about my successor's tenure and then his or her successors tend. And if I don't make investments now in some of these breakthrough technologies that are going to be relevant 5, 10, 15 years from now, then Honeywell is not going to have a bright future. And I just want to provide just a few examples of the kinds of things that we're investing in 
which really don't generate much economic value today. They're actually dilutive in terms of our profitability, but we're investing in them because they're important for the future. And some of those examples are quantum computing. You know, we have what I believe is the world's best quantum computing, both on the hardware and the software side through a business that we own majority of all, Continue. We're investing heavily in a segment called UAVs, UAMs, which is really the future of aviation. So urban air mobility vehicles, whether they're transport humans or packages, using electric power to do that. And through that effort, through that breakthrough technology, we've already been able to secure nearly $7 billion of future business. But again, it's very much in the investment phase right now, but it's something that you know we're planning for. We started a cybersecurity business for the OT, not the IT world, which started at zero and now it's substantially north of 100 million and growing at strong double digit rate and has grown for double digit rate for the last five plus years. These are just a few examples of things that we're doing to position ourselves as a great company for the future, but being on the edge of innovation, but really aligning with some of the mega trends that we think will be important on where the world is heading. Sustainability, this whole area of sustainability is another area where we're investing in heavily to make sure that we have a big role to play in the future. Yeah, so I've seen that firsthand in terms of Honeywell coming into the TPG Rise Climate Fund. And looking at the climate technologies of the future, you're investing in in the long-term approach. And so again, climate change is, I see it as an existential challenge. It just is a huge challenge. It can change all of our lives. But there is also industrial transformation, right? It's going to take place over decades. And that, again, is going to create a lot of jobs and opportunities in the U.S. So I've, I've seen you do that. Now, I want to now get to something. What are the Darius Adamchek management principles, right? What are your management principles at Honeywell? Well, I I think some of my principles are probably reflected in in our behaviors that we have in the company. Because I, I want it to be very specific and precise about what are our principles, which are foundational elements that you simply can't work in Honeywell that you, if you don't believe in these three things, you can't work here, which is, you know, respect for the individual, wanting to be in a diverse workforce and respect diversity and then integrity and ethics. I mean, those are foundational. Like if you don't believe in those three things, just don't come to work at Honeywell. But then behaviors, or you, whether you call them principles, are things that I look for for our leaders, but really I look for anybody, you know, one is, you know, it sounds very simple, which is courage, have the courage to say what's on your mind, have the courage to not just pass things along, have the courage to speak up, to be innovative. And and a lot of times people in a big company, especially, they just kind of want to hide and be quiet when, when that's not really appropriate, you know, have a passion for winning. And when I say winning, it's not necessarily just Honeywell winning but have a passion for our customers winning. We want to make sure that our customers are successful. They value our products, value our offering, and they're winning. And that's probably a behavior that's not so much, you know, can be taught, but it's one that, that one has to have. 
it's it's to be self-aware which is you know we're human beings which means we're not perfect and we have to improve and evolve every day and i want to work with people that are open to feedback and can evolve and change so you know these are some of the behavioral things in terms of just kind of management principles and the way i like to think you know i'm i'm generally very analytical i'm not anecdotal and i like data to make decisions I am much more of a leader who would rather make a decision faster with data rather than kind of sit and spin in circles for days and weeks because most business decisions can be undone, maybe on, on the, unless they're sort of legal or contractual. But I like to move with speed. You know, my definition of leadership is the following. Having the ability to have individuals and teams achieve more than they thought was possible themselves. It's interesting that that last one is one I always look for, defining your job expansively, right? You know, great leaders, you can call it courage, you can call it whatever, but they define their job expansively. Now, Darius, I'd like to end by asking you, what advice do you have for our younger listeners? What advice do you give to students or young people who are trying to navigate their lives and careers in this rapidly changing environment? Yeah, I think a few things, and obviously I'm going to draw from, from my own career because, frankly, I learned a few things, is, is number one is make sure you challenge yourself. Whatever you do, whether it's the school you go to, the major you pick, you know, always look for the next challenge. Don't take the easier route. Don't take necessarily the easiest major you can get into, but take the one that's going to push you and challenge you and you're going to learn the most. And just to give you one quick anecdote, at, at one point I came to my predecessor, Dave Cody, and I literally said this. I said, give me the most broken business you have in Honeywell because that's the one I want to go and run. And I wanted to challenge myself. And you always learn a lot. Granted, it can be a little stressful and, and not always easy, but I've learned a lot more from those very difficult, challenging environments than the ones that were easy. And, you know, I had an easy boss and it was easy to be there. I mean, those are fine, but I just didn't grow as much as a professor. So I think number one, you know, I think the second one, which is build relationships. I mean, build relationships with people because, you know, there's a lot of people I've kept in touch with my whole career. And sometimes we'll continue to work in, together in various roles and various jobs and so on and maintain the relationships with the people you know and you respect. I think that that's critically, critically important. You know, find some level of balance. A job like mine, balance is probably not the easiest thing to do, but you have to create some opportunities between your professional life and your personal life. There has to be some boundaries. I don't know what those boundaries are for you. You're going to have, nobody can define that for you, but having some balance between those two things are, is important because sometimes, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be kind of at the end of your career and say, you know, I've had a great career, but I've kind of lost touch with all reality when it comes on my personal life. So you've got to set some boundaries. And by the way, that gets tougher and tougher as you progress in a company. And also think about what value, what you can do for the greater community, whether it's community outside the company you work in or inside the company is, you know, how do you sort of balance those needs? And maybe last, and this sounds so simple and so basic, but 
I found this is maybe the single, you know, if I tell you one thing to sort of remember, this would be it, which is do what you say and say what you do. I mean, this sounds so simplistic and so easy, but it's surprising how many people actually don't live by that. And as a professional and a trusted professional, it's something that's foundational, in my opinion. So I think I'll probably leave it on that one, Hank, because I just found it to be so important in maintaining and keeping one's credibility. Darius, that's a good one to end on. And I'm going to thank you. You know, I make the case all the time that if done properly, business is a noble profession. And you've given our listeners a real insight into how an outstanding company can make a real difference. So thank you for all your do, And thank you for a terrific interview. Thank you, Hank. It was great to be here. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.